Paul Harder began following that lead. And God says we are like that backsliding effort. He uses that imagery to describe you and me. And the attitude we had when we were still in worldwide, we were comfortable there, we thought. We didn't realize we were pulling back so hard on God. But that's what he says we were doing. Interesting. You can't work with them when they're in that attitude. How do you work with and lead something to water or lead the seed if it's pulling back constantly? How is this how does it show up in us? I've heard people say, I will never follow a man again. Or no man is going to tell me what to do. Or no minister is going to tell me what to do. Is that a valid position to take? We have 38 of us here today. You voluntarily came here, didn't you? And I'm going to read some scriptures to you. Maybe I won't tell you what to do, but I'm going to show you some verses which tell you what to do. And if I say it correctly, are you not bound to follow that? Is that following the man? Well, in one sense it is. Because you're accepting that teaching as it comes from the Bible. But there are many who have set, their, set themselves and said, Jesus is my effort, and therefore I will not follow anybody. So they set all four feet, they stiffen their neck, and that's another imagery God used about Israel. Uh, Stubborn and stiff neck. What a stiff neck ever is. She stiffens her neck and pulls against the rope. <laughs> I've talked about my dog once or twice in sermons. He's a little over 100 pounds now. But when he was a puppy, just, I don't know, two, three, four, five, six, eight pounds, we put a leash on his neck. And what was his immediate reaction? Just like the heifer. Planted all four feet on the bottom floor and got drugged. He wasn't cobbling weight because he thought he bought that. Once that leash went around his neck, it began to tighten a little bit. Well, his immediate reaction was to pull away from my wife or from me, not come to us and let slack in the rope, but to jerk the other direction. And if he went ahead and pulled him this way, he would roll over fall, roll over two or three times and get up and wonder, what's going on here? Didn't quite know how to react. And maybe that's part of what I want to get at today. Maybe not that we are stubborn and stiff-necked. How can I soften that? Because that's what God said. But partly, it may be that we don't quite know what to do or how to do it. And that's part of the reason they, they plant their feet, because they don't know what is about to happen. And when it starts to happen, when the rope gets tight, then they just pull back all the harder, trying to get away from what is trying to pull them forward. And isn't that what we've seen in the Church of God? We pull ourselves back from, in some cases, those who would lead us forward. Now, part of the problem was we were being led falsely by some, and we began to pull back from that. And then we got in an attitude of pulling back. And once that attitude was established in us, then we set our neck, we set our feet, and said, I won't let anybody tell me. Is that a healthy attitude? Let's look at society a little bit. I want to go to Isaiah 3 now. Isaiah 3. This is one we are all familiar with. And let's begin in verse 12. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. We see that in our society today. The women stand up now in their power suits and their high heels, and they say, I am woman. I am me. I am. Be very, very careful with that terminology. I am. That is a name for God. But what do the psychologists today teach us? They teach us 
You are. I am. High self-esteem. What does the Bible say? Esteem yourself lower than others. Abase yourself that I may raise you. If you try to exalt yourself, he says, I won't put you down. We see it in many forms in our society. It's a now generation. We have the hot now chain of restaurants. We have the attitude-away, right-away restaurants. We've talked about these things before. I am one. I am child. To me, generation, I can do anything I like. No one tells me what to do, buddy. I'm king of this road. We've all heard it. We have it drilled into us via sitcoms, movies, sports heroes, politicians, businesses, bosses, advertisers, psychologists, preachers, peers, and on the freeway. Is it any wonder we say, I will get mine first? I am preeminent. I will judge what I do. I will not listen to anyone else. That is an attitude that we have to get away from. What about the way we sit in this society, brethren? There was a city at one time south of Jerusalem in which people over a period of time had gotten used to the city life, they had gotten used to the way things were, and they got jaded or tired of the things that God normally had set up for mankind, and they got into homosexuality and lesbianism. So the place, the whole city, the cities, were that way. Did they think they were abnormal? I think they were abnormal. Did they think they were abnormal? No. Did Lot's wife think they were abnormal? Eh, maybe a little bit. She went when Lot said, let's go. But if he led her out of the city, she turned and looked back. She set her feet and turned and looked back. And you know the rest of the story. But to her, that looked fairly normal back there. And to us, what we see in these perverted, gross cities we live in today can almost seem normal. And we living in it think we're normal too. No, we're not. We're not normal according to God's standards. Put it that way. We may be normal, and if you're normal and you're like the city you're living in, you are not normal to God. And as a result, look what happened to Lot's wife when she pulled back. Notice this now in verse 12. All my people, in the middle of the verse, they which lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. Now that could have applied to us when we were back in worldwide and we had to come out. But the Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. And we blame it all on maybe to the cottages or on the ministry. They led us astray. Now what does God say here? It says those which lead us cause us to err, but he says God stands to judge the people. He holds us responsible for allowing our wives to rule over us or to oppress us and our children to rule over us. He says we must do something about it. This can apply spiritually if we allow a false church to lead over us or to rule over us. We as the children go along with it or the ministry as, as the children of those false churches go along with it and teach it to us. But God stands to judge the people. Number one. Number two, verse 14, the Lord will enter into judgment with the ancients or the elders of his people as well. So the judgment for what has happened comes on both, doesn't it? We are held responsible ourselves for what we have allowed to happen to us, what has occurred with our attitude. Mr. Armstrong often said, the whole thing revolves around attitude. And it does. We'll see that here. As we go. Now, Zephaniah 2, let's look at an attitude a little bit. Zephaniah 2. I can find Zephaniah, there it is. Zephaniah 2 and verse 15. 
rejoicing city that dwells carelessly and that says in her heart, I am. There we find those words again. And there is none beside me. Speaking of uh, Assyria here, uh, from verse uh, 13. How is she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in? Everyone that passes by her shall hiss and wag his hand. So the Assyrian is going to stand again and say, I am. And God is going to say, no, you're not. He's going to allow her to punish a stiff-necked and rebellious backsliding ever first. And then he's going to take the I am right out of her mouth. She dwells carelessly. Well, that should be a warning to us not to be careless in our attitude. Look what happens when we say that. Romans 10, verses 2 and 3. We'll turn back there quickly. Romans 10. Speaking of Israel, of the church, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, going about to establish their own righteousness. Isn't that what we've seen? We've forgotten the righteousness of God in the greater church of God. Have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That's what we're trying to do in this church, is restore the righteousness of God. To become like God. Let's look at this word zealous a little bit. Philippians 3, 6, I won't turn to this one. Uh, but Paul was persecuting the church with zeal. Why is it that if it's stopping slaves or doing something to destroy something, we will approach it so zealously? But there's something about us that when it comes to putting the same amount of energy and effort into righteousness, that it is so difficult for us to do. If you notice that, if there's a snake in your living room, my mother one time, we might have built a house and hadn't put the baseboards down yet, and uh, my mother came, this was in West Texas, my mother came into the bathroom, stumbled in there early one morning, and there was a rattlesnake coiled up in front of the toilet. That'll wake you up very quickly. And I suspect the dad heard the street, came to the bathroom, and very fervently, decidedly, walked out that rattlesnake. I, I react the same way when there's danger or something of that nature. But why is it sometimes I have to drag myself to my knees? I have to drag myself to study the Bible at times. Sometimes it comes pretty easy, but sometimes my carnal nature is there, and I will plant my feet, and it'll follow me through the day. I know I need to do it. I know I didn't do it or didn't do it as well as I should have or didn't do it fervently or half-heartedly. And it bothers me. But it's hard to have that kind of zeal for God. Zeal is defined in Webster's as eagerness and ardent interest in pursuit of something. A zealot was a fanatic in a cause. And when God tells us to seek Him with all our heart, does not that make us a part of God's fan club? How do the fans at football games cheer? The fans in college games. Pros are a little more laid back sometimes. But what about the college games? All they get zealous and fervent and loud. Do we get that way with God and His way? Are we zealous? Let's go back to Numbers 25, verse 11. Talk about Phineas a little bit. You might not remember Phineas, who he was, what he did, but uh, we'll review it. Numbers chapter 25. And let's begin down in verse 11. Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my wrath away from the children of Israel while he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. 
Israel began to get lackadaisical, plant their feet, turn away from God, and Benny stood in the gap. Benny planted his feet the other direction and said, no, he will not depart from God. This is what we must do. And thereby save Israel. Isn't that amazing? Cry aloud and spare not. Tell my people their sins, lest they be consumed. That's a prophecy for the last days. How can we make something too hard? Brethren, we in this church, the ministry, are seeking to restore the standards. A standard that Herbert Armstrong set fairly high, and a standard that as we study the Bible and see more and more of God and Christ, we want to set higher and higher. That makes it harder, doesn't it? To reach the standard. It makes it difficult. We're trying to raise the standard of what it, where it ought to be on the Sabbath. You heard Harold Wade's sermon last week about how to keep the Sabbath, not just to cease from work and rest. We're commissioned to do that, but there's also the sin of only and omitting to do those things that we should do. Is it enough when a young man and a young woman date and they're thinking about getting married? Is it enough just to be there? Or do they look into each other's eyes? Do they talk endlessly and by the hour? about the life they want to build, the children in the house and the job they want to have, where they want it to be. Is it enough just to be interesting? I don't want to get on another sermon on the Sabbath, but the standard was set very high, I thought, by Harold, and I appreciated it very much. It made me look at myself and see how well I was keeping the Sabbath, or how well I wasn't. And healing and faith, we're trying to stretch your faith to trust God more. Some will plant their feet and say, oh, don't do that. But isn't that what we should do, is get close to God so that we can trust Him more and more and more as time goes on with our lives? What about the law? What about race issues? What about everything? Where we are to have the right attitude toward one another. setting the right standard. Now we as human beings, as the ministry, as the priest in that sense in the New Testament, have sinned ourselves. Therefore we have to have mercy, compassion, love, patience with those of you who have sinned the same way we have sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Yet at the same time, we have to realize the standard is Jesus Christ. And we can't lower the standard and say, well, it's okay, honey, you don't have to live up to this. No, we can say, here, honey, the standard is up here. You say, oh, I'm sorry, I'll pat you on the back. Now get back there and run and jump again. We have to reach the standard. I learned about that in school as kind of high up. Because I'm a little short, thick. And it was hard for me to jump. I couldn't get this off the ground. I won't even attempt it today. You came freely here. No one put a rope around your neck and pulled you here. If they, if we had tried, you probably would have set your feet and wouldn't be here today. You'd have broken the rope or strangled yourself to that. But you came here freely. So we have a duty to give you what you need. Woe be to us if we don't. You came here freely, and you can leave just as freely if you do not like what you hear here. Now in the meantime, while you are here, we are going to seek to make you uncomfortable. Because we were comfortable in worldwide. And God did not like that. And he blew us apart. Because we were comfortable in the church. 
And even though we saw some things going wrong and being taught wrong, we were still saying, well, this is the church. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And finally we got the idea and came out there. But it was God's doing, because we were too comfortable in our attitudes. So we feel it is our responsibility not to let you get comfortable here. We want you to feel welcome, but not comfortable. Because a law of comfort is not what is required to prepare us for the kingdom of God. If we are comfortable, then that means we're not working at overcoming. Titus 2.14, I won't turn to that one, but he calls us a particular people and that we should be zealous of good works. Revelation 3.19, not to be lukewarm, be zealous and repent. doesn't just say repent at your leisure, or repent if it's comfortable to, or change something if you know, pressures come on you, and oh, okay, I guess I probably should change this. Be zealous to repent, God says. And we've learned about ourselves being laid a sin in the last few years, have we really caught the vision, or are we still being destroyed because we are denying this knowledge? A lot of important scriptures here. It reminded me a little bit of the story of Jehu, which I think of occasionally. Jehu was coming, and some who knew Jehu were standing watching the, the dust rising out over the desert. And someone said, Who comes? And someone else said, Well, it must be Jehu, for he drives furiously. Always in a hurry. Now, we have different personalities. Some people, I guess, are the A personalities, and they're always in a hurry, and fretful and worrying and, and animated. Some of us have. Uh, more lizard-like uh, personality, perhaps, uh, and move a little slower. We're uh, not quick to move. Is that necessarily wrong? No. I don't think we all have to suddenly turn into tyrants who are going to uh, whip the world today. But we can be gentle. We can be slower in approaching things and still be wholehearted, can't we? It says, whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. As hard as you know how to do it. Within the confines of your personality. If you're normally phlegmatic and slow moving, then take the pace up. And if you're normally very quick and racing around, then maybe you're racing around doing the wrong things, and maybe you need to go the other little way a little way, slow down, get your life more in control, and wholeheartedly seek God, maybe than some of the other things that you might be seeking, see. We can all do it with our whole heart, within the confines of our own personality, be sure we're getting the job done. Proverbs 13, I mean 31 and verse 13, talking about the virtuous woman, and I don't have time to go into all of that, but it says that she worked willingly with her hands. A willingness. And we'll talk about ready here a little bit. Matthew 25, verse 10. Remember the ten virgins? The bridegroom came, those that were ready went in. Those who were ready in attitude, ready in mind, ready in overcoming. The others are left behind. Hebrews 12 is a chapter about chastening. And if God chastens us, which he has done, he has shown he is not unwilling to chasten us, hasn't he? He blew us out of the church. He's worked us over. He's left us in confusion and frustration to work our way to repentance and righteousness. And some of those that he left behind in worldwide, it doesn't appear he's even chasing them at this point. They may wait with tribulation before they begin to wake up. I don't know. They've sat there a long time. I don't mean to point fingers at anyone there. I'm talking to me. I'm talking to you. We have to be sure that we stay.
say, in a chastenable condition. Looking diligently, it says. How many hours are there in a day, brethren? Are there not 24? It takes about nine, doesn't it, normally, for us to work? Maybe half hour to get there and eight hours to work and a half hour home, there's nine. Most of us sleep or try to at least about eight hours a day on the average. There's 17. It takes about another hour to stop food in our face. There's 18. Uh, then you can figure an hour or two for other needs. A babe, drink. Put on your clothes, you know, the personal things you might do. Um, there's about, what, three or four hours left. How much, then you got to have time for TV and sports and newspapers and that kind of thing, don't you? Another hour there. Man, we're down to two or three hours or an hour or two that's left. And I'm not even talking about all the other things that come into it. You've got to shop and you got to work on the car and on and on it goes. There's absolutely more to do in a day than we can do. That's our society. You think it's not perverted? How much time is left for gossip? And if we just get so overwrought, we feel like we deserve a break today, then we'll waste it at McDonald's or watching the TV in the corner. And then McDonald's on the TV become the God because we put that ahead of serving the true God and devoting the time and energy to Him that we need to do. Looking diligently, see, we have to come to have this attitude of a new bride looking so diligently to please our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Uh, let's go back to 1 Samuel 3. 1 Samuel 3. This is really a good one. 1 Samuel 3. About attitude. Here Eli was the priest or the prophet, and Samuel was working as a trainee under him. Just a young fellow. And in the middle of the night, you know the story, so I won't read it all here, uh, he heard a voice. Verse 4, the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I, out of a dead place now. This child was of such an attitude that in the middle of the night, when he thought he heard Eli call him, he didn't say, Oh, the old man's calling again. What does he need now? He said, Here am I. He ran in. Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. God spoke to Samuel again. Here am I. What an attitude. How are your children when you go in and say, Wake up? <laughs> Here am I. <laughs> sure, you bet. <laughs> this happened again. Why didn't Eli begin to wake up? He was probably laying there probably one hand was one saying, Here am I. <laughs> so this time he began to say, Oh, God must have spoken to Samuel. So he said, Next time he speaks again, you say, verse 9, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went down and lay down in his place. And it did happen. Verse 11, the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that hears it shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. And he was going to end Eli's rule. But he also said he's going to make an end of this age. The suddenly he will come to the temple. Are we, in the attitude of the bride, ready to say, Here am I, to our bridegroom? Are we that responsive, in other words? Verse 16, Then Eli, Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, Here am I. This time it was Eli called. And this time, Eli said, Now you tell me everything God told you. And Samuel didn't hold anything back. He did nothing from him in verse 18. He told Eli, you're falling. God is going 
to destroy your family because of disobedience. He did exactly what God said. He didn't hold anything back out of fear or whatever. What an attitude. I can want to do whatever God tells me, however he does it. I don't care what the cost, what the consequence. I am going to do it. I'm going to do it now. Wow. How are we checking out so far as a bride? Are we of this kind of a ready mind? A here am I attitude, we could call it. Isaiah 58. We have an example from God himself of what will happen. Let's begin in verse 9 of Isaiah 58. He says, if we will fast in the right attitude, and I won't take the time to go into all that because you're familiar with the scripture, I'm sure, but notice verse 9. Then shall you call, and the Lord shall answer. You shall cry, and he shall say, here am I. Wow! Wouldn't it be nice if we, as the bride, could get so closely attuned to God the Father and Jesus Christ, our bridegroom, that we would do the right things and we act in the right way, so that when we called, he would say, Here am I. I would just love to be in God's graces and be, have him so well pleased with me that I knew when I said something to God, I would get an answer. How many times did you, how many times did I pray to God and ask for an answer about something? And the silence nearly destroyed us. It was nothing, right? Because God didn't answer. He didn't say, here am I. Now he says, if our attitude is that way, just as Samuel's was, then we will call and he will answer. If you take away from the midst of you the yoke, the putting forth of the finger and speaking vanity, we'll quit comparing ourselves among ourselves, we'll quit pushing at each other, if we will love each other and help each other, as we go on down and read the context, then he says, I will answer you. We have a job to do here. We have to become as Samuel was, so instant, so ready, so perfect, so zealous, so in tune with our God and the one we are about to marry, Jesus Christ, that he will answer us. Just like that. I don't think we're quite there yet. I think we still need to have our attitudes prepared somewhat. Now, I'll speak for me. I know I have a ways to go. You speak for you. I'm just reading the scriptures to you. Second Corinthians 8, 19. Put down in your notes. Uh, I will turn to it. But Paul compliments them on being of a ready mind. Now what about it? When our, your husband says, Honey, are you ready? Are you with the husband? See, we're part of the bride too. This isn't just on the women now. Because in the metaphor of the bride and the bridegroom, the whole church is the bride. So it's the man. Do we yield to her as well? Or do we put her off? Or I'll get around to it someday. See, we're in training here to be the bride of Jesus Christ. And our marriages are the training ground for that. You look at each other now. Are you wives, humble and submissive? Or do you still plant those feet and stiffen that neck and figure it has to be done your way? And do husbands love their wives and submit to them in Ephesians 5? In some way, the same way. Maybe I should say the same way. As a man, I hate to admit that I have to submit to her. <laughs> That's a tough one. She uses it on me, too. But this is our training ground. How are we doing? Who rules the roost? The women and children? The man just sort of giving up and sits back and say, well, 
I can't change it. Up to you, God. And yet God holds you responsible for being the head of your family. What was that story? I, this is not my notes to say, and I don't necessarily recommend it. But somebody was telling me about a guy whose wife is off incessantly, constantly. And this went on for about 40 or 50 years. I don't remember the exact details of the story, but year after year after year. And he was kind of a mouthy guy, and all the family realized when Mom is uh, holding court, that just sits. And, and after about 40 or 50 years, one time, some of the family were sitting around, and he just stood up and clapped her. And he sat back down. And that's enough. You know, he needs about all he can take. Maybe that isn't the right way to use, but uh, find a way. <laughs> I don't necessarily recommend that one, but find a way. Maybe through communication you can come to the place that uh, you can get the order straight. Now, women sometimes say, okay, I'll let him wear the pants. <laughs> well, that doesn't work, though. See, because if you let him wear the pants, that means you're giving him permission to have them on today. No, he has to put them on, and you have to allow him to without getting in his way or kicking him as he puts them on. See? But if the marriage is to work in harmony, can you imagine, brethren, what it would be like if we all went into the kingdom of God with all four feet planted in our next step against Christ's rope, went into the kingdom of God and lived forever and ever, all of us disagreeing and not willing to follow the rule of Jesus Christ? You know what would happen before he, you know, he was pulling on the rope trying to pull us into his kingdom that way? And we were coming. He let go of the rope. That's what he said back there in Hosea. I'm not going to chase him. I'll let him go. I don't want that in my kingdom. Do you want it in yours here as a microcosm of God's Second uh, Corinthians 8.12? Let's go back to that. That was a, good, a really good one. Second Corinthians 8. And verse 12. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man has, and not according to that he has not. Doesn't God say that he will judge us based on what we do with what we have to do with? Attitude is so clearly important here of being willing to do whatever God says. Now, some of us may not have much smarts. I meet people, things like every day, who are smarter than I am. And all they they're just smarter. they got all brains. The only way I can make it up is to get on my knees and pour the God of heaven and earth to give me more of his spirit that I might be able to do what I need to do. It keeps me humble. When I meet people smarter than I am. Man, I wish I was mighty and noble and wise, but I'm not. So I have to get on my knees and be hung that way. But God says if I have a ready and a willing mind, that He will make up the difference. I find that very, very encouraging. If my attitude is right, then things are going to work out. <clears throat> 1 Peter 5, 2, I won't turn to, but it says, Feed the flock of God with a ready mind. Uh, Acts 17. Let's go back there. We're close. Acts 17. And uh, verse 11. Acts 17, 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. So willingly, so readily, it's easy to sit back 
that is, mentally set our four feet and say, I don't know whether I agree with that or not. Oh, come on. That's just your opinion. Isn't it easy to get in that frame of mind? Oh, that minister over there, no, I, I don't agree with that. But do you get the Bible out and do you carefully check it out to see what God says? See, it takes a ready mind to be willing to make the sacrifice of your time and energy to get that book out and check it out. But that's the kind of mind God is looking for, not one that just halts and pulls back. And I don't agree with that or not. That's an easy attitude to have. And it also sort of lets you off the hook. You don't really have to make a judgment on it. All the songs, too. Turn back there. I can spend the rest of the sermon two or three more in the Song of Solomon on this, but we won't do it. Um, let's pick up a couple of things very quickly. Song of Psalms 2 and verse 3. <clears throat> As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. It's so eager to be there, and so delighted with him. And our attitude toward God? Are we so delighted with our prayer time or our study time? Do we look forward to that? Our human nature likes to plant itself and say, oh, I don't feel like studying right now. I'm tired. I'll just watch this next sitcom and I'll go study. My off button on that TV is so hard to push. And you know, you're tired and you can't punch that off button. Funny, the on button is just so easy. It's like a degree. It's easy. But the off button is hard to come by. Where is our delight? <clears throat> With great delight. Chapter 5, verse 2. He expected her to be ready. He came, and she said, I sleep, but my heart wakes. It is the voice of my beloved that knocks, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. Look at this imagery. For my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. And she says, I put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I've washed my feet. How shall I defile him? And then she finally gets up, goes to the door, and by then he's gone. That's scary. Where was this here am I? When he first knocks on the door and says, Honey, it's me. I've been so excited. I've traveled all night to get here. Open up. I want to see you. I've had to cut off my clothes and shoes. Does that sound like our home sometimes? Chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved, and his desire is toward me. It's a fervency of attitude here. He sets the temple. I am his. Now let's look at the word instant for a couple of a few scriptures here. Jeremiah 18, verse 17. Isaiah, Jeremiah, let's see, Jeremiah, flip right over, uh, 18, I flip past, Jeremiah 18, and beginning in verse 17. That's not the scripture I wanted. 18. Well, I had the right attitude, believe me. Where did it go? Anyway, he says that in what instant I shall speak concerning a nation, then this judgment is going to happen to us. At what instant I decide. The heat is instant. Verse 7. Oh, I wrote it down. Okay. Thank you. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck it up and to pull it out and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil... I will relent of the evil that I thought to do to them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build it and to plant it, and if God obey, he will pluck it down. But God is going to do things in an instant way. And what if he comes on you instantly? <laughs> no? Are we in instant obedience? Like uh, the bride was supposed to be back there in the song I wanted to tie it with that. Romans 12, 8 through 12. 
to some of the words that uh, Paul uses back here. Romans 12. Uh, let's begin in verse 8. He that rules with diligence, he that shows mercy with cheerfulness. And then he talks about abhorring that which is evil. That's a very strong word in verse 9. Cleave to that which is good. Wrap your arms around it, in other words. Cleave to it. Uh, let's see. Verse 11, not slothful or lazy or lackadaisical in business, but fervent in spirit. Verse 11, uh, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Are we so close to God that we can establish instant rapport with Him in prayer? There have been times, I, I guess, when I could say I was instant in prayer, maybe the car was about to roll over, and I prayed pretty quickly. And I felt like I made contact pretty quickly. But then there's sometimes I might approach it perfectly and it takes me half an hour to even feel like the communication is established. So I have to work at getting close enough to God that I can be instant in prayer even in normal times. Not when something serious is happening, but continuing instant in prayer. Second uh, Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be instant, in season and out of season. Acts 26.7, I won't turn to either, you can put it down, but it says essentially, under which promise our twelve tribes, all of Israel, the church, spiritually, instantly serving God day and night. That reminds me of Samuel again. Instantly serving God. What about Abraham? Go sacrifice your son Isaac. <coughs> Did uh, Abraham sit back and say, what if he means now? <laughs> Can I wait and think about this a month? Well, he just sat over that. And he told Isaac, let's go. And apparently he didn't have to hog tie Isaac either. He instantly obeyed his father. Okay, God, so the father was going to sacrifice. And somewhere along the line he began to realize he was the sacrifice. Did he pitch a fit then? Apparently not. He said, Father, where is the white haram? You know, he's beginning to get a little nervous here. I imagine he got even more nervous as he got tied down. Where would you and I be if our father started tying us down and then he reached down and pulled out a big long knife? Dad, uh, you know, Dad, what, what's going on here? And we might be screaming and wailing. What about God if he allows us to come to the point of being martyred? What if we find ourselves facing death itself? Whether it be from a sickness that we need healed of, or whether it be someone else putting the knife to our throat. Are we at a level of faith and spiritual understanding and submission to God that we are willing to die? If need be. If he so chooses in his sovereignty to allow us to be sawed from one end to the other, as Isaiah apparently was, are we ready for that? Instant in obedience. He expects us to be ready. What about 1 Peter 3 and verse 6? I'll turn back to that one. This is one of those that uh, is in there in Scripture. And we open the Psalms that Scripture, the Word of God, has been purified three times. This isn't a joke back here in First Peter. It is Scripture, and it is written by the hand of God Almighty through Peter. First Peter 3, and I'm looking for verse 6. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well and are not blown away by this. Is that a joke? That you are to look to your husband, to your groom, in that way? Sarah did. She's written in the scriptures. That's fairly heavy. It's easy to joke about. But can you call your husband Lord or Master? Think about that. What else does it say here? Something about reverence, doesn't it? That's a different scripture, or is that this one? See that she 
you reverence him is, uh, is what I'm thinking of. I, my eye doesn't fall on it here. It's in there. You can look it up if you're of a ready mind to prove it. But Ephesians 5 shows that the sovereignty of the husband with the wife is to be the same as Christ of the church. That's not something Daryl Henson made up. That's in your Bible. And I'll tell you, ladies, you can accomplish that with a sweaty, selfish, carnal, self-seeking men. You are well on your way for the kingdom of God. What about Jesus Christ himself and his attitude? Think about this. You find out that you are going to have to die on a cross, on a stake. Be hung up, very ignominious death. That would not be an easy thing to do. To know your death was coming, that it was coming soon, and you might pray and sweat blood that night, knowing that you would give yourself over willingly the next day. Not hide it all the way, not have everybody run grab swords, just have one sword there that the scripture might be fulfilled and then rebuke Peter and make him put it away because he pulled it out and tried to kill the high priest, serve the high priest here with us. Try to cut his head off, cut his ear off, is what I'm trying to say. Probably. But what did Christ say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There is a ready mind, instant obedience, willing. That's what Christ is looking at in his pride and wants to see in her. If we practice it with each other, what will happen to our marriages? What will happen to our interrelationships in the congregation? Are we ready to give our heart, mind, body, and soul? Or do we hold back one foot, two feet, three feet, four feet, our hand? To be so responsive, so yielding, so submitting, what do I, groom, say to their bride, I'll climb the highest mountains, I'll swim the widest seas, I'll do anything for you. What did Paul say? I'll eat no meat if you would stumble. I'll give my other cheek if you smite me on one side, Christ said. I will give my life in daily sacrifice, mortifying the deeds of the flesh. I surrender to the point of death. Take me, I'm yours. This is what we are seeking in our attitude. It doesn't come easy. Think back on the Song of Songs. For his nation cost her dearly, he was gone. Matthew 25. The virgin slept. The door was shut. It was too late. What about the example where Christ said, follow me. And one said, well, i got to go bury my father. Another one said, I've got a yoke of oxen. I've got to try. I'll, I'll, I'll show up sooner or later. Hesitation costs them dearly. What about when it comes time to flee to a place of safety, of training, to be with Christ and be trained? What did you say? Oh, I don't think this is the time. You know, so and so, I, you know, maybe God's not really with him. What if the call goes around? Someone in the congregation is told to call you. And you don't like that person in the congregation. Oh, well, that's just so-and-so. And you hesitate. It could cost you a lot. I don't want to come that way. You might also have an angel sit on your shoulder and make it easy for you. But God doesn't always work that way, does he? He's worked through human instruments before. He sent Moses to tell them. He didn't have an angel sit on every Israelite shoulder. Didn't do it. Are we, in other words, on the same wavelength as God? Let's go back real quickly now to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. And beginning in verse 25. See that you refuse not him that speaks, for if they escape not who refused him that spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven, as Lot's wife did, 
turned back, set her feet, planted her feet, wanted to go back, didn't realize she was perverted, that her attitude was not right, and she became a pillar of salt. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, as the things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Are we of such a ready, eager, diligent, zealous mind with our attitude prepared that no matter what comes along, we will not be shaken? Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God how? Acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Now there is a ready, instant, alert, tuned in mind. Are we this tuned to Jesus Christ and his word? For our God is a consuming fire. We have people today telling us that Jesus Christ just loves us. And all we do is just love him and get this gooey feeling inside that that's all that is required of us. We can lay back, we can sit back, we don't have to feed our bodies into subjection, we don't have to fight daily, we don't have to quell with human nature. Just accept the Lord, and everything will be okay. That's baloney! Our God is not just a sweet Jesus, He is a consoling fire! And we had better be awake and alert. Now let's go back to Hosea 10. And we'll close here. Hosea 10. We started in Hosea about the backsliding efforts that God has called us. Now let's go back there again. This time to Hosea. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Hosea 10, 11. And Ephraim is an, is as an heifer that is taught and loves to tread out the corn. But I passed over upon her fair neck. I will make Ephraim to ride. Judah shall plow and Jacob shall break his clods. Throw yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Bring up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord. Notice some things here that have changed. Whereas before, the feet were all planted and the neck was stiff, now it says that Ephraim is an heifer that is taught. Now, when you put a robe around her neck, she follows you willingly, lovingly. I've had cows that would do that, put a rope around their neck. They won't pull back at all. They have learned. They have been taught. So when I speak, and when I put a rope on, they will put their nose right behind me and follow me. Horses will do it. And loves to tread out the corn. Now when they tread it out the corn, they put a yoke over their neck, they attach it to this wheel, and the cows would walk round and round and round, treading out the corn. That's why Paul said, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. They're able to reach down with their mouth, and pick some corn up and chew it as they walk. And they're getting paid for their work. They willingly come under the yoke. They run it. I didn't know if I would follow this rope that I could eat corn. Wow! They don't plant their feet anymore. They're like all Harley. Once he learns, now when he sees the leash come out, he begins to bark, he gets so excited, he doesn't know what, he's beside himself. It's hard to get him to even sit still long enough to get the lead on him. Because he knows when the lead goes on, he gets to go walk in the cemetery. <laughs> now that may not be exciting to you, but he just, he gets so excited, he falls. He loves to be led that's what we have to become. That's what we have to do. We have to enjoy what God has put on us. Because he said, really, 
My yoke is easy, my burden is light. The weakest Adam believes it. Our carnal nature wants to plant itself and resist God. But we'll have to come to love it. Come to the point out of a dead sleep. Here am I, Lord. What do you want? Let's go. Let's do it. Let's go now. That's the kind of variety looking for. Read Proverbs 31. If we can have this attitude, the Father is going to be well pleased. What is it going to be like when the bride is finally prepared? Her attitude is so alive, so alert, so awake. She's quivering with anticipation and delight. And it's time for the wedding. Maybe the Father of all the universe will take her body honor and lead her to his Son. And he will look lovingly and tenderly into her eyes and say, I will, and I do. And she, we, you, me, will look up at him deeply into his eyes and say, I will, I do. 